our series ablaze life in Scripture Meet is coming to an end. Not today. We'll be wrapping this series up next week at our family worship service. Today we're going to be in the book of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Well, they're passing them out. And let's talk just about last week. Last week, we heard a sermon from one of our youth pastors, Arthur Woods, and he shared boldly and with a level of intimacy and intimately with us about a path that God put his family on more than two years ago. Arthur did an excellent job identifying barriers to trusting God. Does anyone remember his second barrier? It was fear. Fear. And he took a moment to identify this in Peter from Luke 22. And he couldn't have done a better job at leading into today. I was actually a little nervous. I thought he would say my entire sermon last week. And and fortunately, he just gave a great lead-in about Peter and fear. So our series right now is about passages that have impacted or are impacting currently our staff. Could be be the, the past, you know, 20, 30 years ago, or could have just been in the last year. So today, we're going to be looking at John 21, 1 through 19. That is one of those passages for me. We're going to have a time of prayer that I'll lead you in, and then we're going to continue our worship in song. So our bulletin, let me quickly point something out. Our bulletin has a response card in it. If there's a point in the service that you feel the Lord has identified something in you, something in your life that is responding to the scripture or the message today, consider taking a moment to jot it down. Use it as a bookmark in your Bible and your prayer time to remind yourself what was said in that moment. If, if you don't want to use it that way, please hand it back to us. We'd be honored as a staff to be praying for you. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I ask now that you protect this time. Would we be able to focus on your scripture and hear your voice? Would you teach us today, Lord, what it means to be a follower of you? Would the words of my mouth be an encouragement to the body of LEFC? Amen. So heading into our specific reference for this week, I want to give a little bit of context for what has already happened. Jesus has already met with the disciples for Passover. He has already had the Passover meal in the upper room. Jesus has already been betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter has already denied Jesus. Jesus has been crucified, he dies, and he's buried. And in all the teaching and talk with the disciples, the disciples totally missed Jesus' best Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Some of you are thinking, Jesus said, get to the chopper. (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But he did say, I'll be back. And he does. Jesus does come back. The tomb is empty. And this is where he starts to interact with his followers, with his disciples. We're on page 757 in the church Bible. Tap your way there in the Bible app. We're in John 21, 1 through 19. Today we're going to be reading it in sections. And we're going to start in verses 1 to 3. Follow along with me. John 21, 1 through 3 right now. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, 
the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The very first word in verse 1 is afterward. And when I see that word, I think, after what? So, previous to this moment in John 20, Jesus had appeared in a locked room with his disciples. He showed them his hands and his feet. And I love the first words out of his mouth when he appears in front of them in a locked room. Peace be with you. Because it would be nuts to see the risen Jesus if you didn't think he was going to be alive. Now, this wispy, ethereal, almost ghost Jesus being in that room, that would be crazy enough. But Jesus, Jesus, walking on land, Jesus, talking, interacting with people, Jesus. Here are my hands and feet, Jesus. Touch me, Jesus. You got to believe they were nervous about this. What is this? What is going on? We're scared. We're nervous. And Jesus says, peace be with you. Now, Jesus appeared to his disciples prior to our John 21 passage today and is appearing again in our passage today, but it's not in a locked room. This time they are by the Sea of Galilee. I'm already excited by hearing that uh, they're at the Sea of Galilee. Things have happened at the Sea of Galilee before, and we're going to get there later today about the Sea of Galilee. Verse 2 says exactly who was there. Verse 1 said that Jesus appeared to his disciples, and verse 2 defines precisely who that is. It's Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the brothers Zebedee, plus two more. Did anyone keep count? Seven. So more than half. More than half of the disciples are together to do something. And verse 3, Simon Peter is the ringleader and says what he's going to do. I'm going fishing. And the remaining six respond with, cool, we'll go fishing too. And they fish. How long did they fish for? That's right. All night long. All night long. Now here's the thing, though. If you're partying with Lionel Richie all night long, According to him, the energy just keeps you moving all night. Now, dancing your troubles away is something. But they're not in a dance hall. They don't have Lionel Richie. That's a shame. And if you're sitting in a boat all night long, not doing what you thought you were going to be doing, what did they think they were going to be doing? They thought they were going to be catching fish. They don't. So you get a bit frustrated. You lost a night of sleep. So you're tired, you experience fatigue, you're sore from kind of the limited space you have with a number of people on that boat. How's your attitude? I like it, lousy, not good. I said not the greatest. Now, imagine then if somebody decides to yell some advice to you from the comfort of land. <laughs> this is verse four and five. That's where we're going. In the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the, the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. The one thing they went out to do, they did not. And then some stranger stands on the shore about a hundred yards away to ask them the question. It could feel like they're getting hassled. How good are you at what you're doing? So the fact that they don't recognize him is a bit perplexing to me, just a little bit. I'm always caught by that. And it, it, it's just a little. 
And I feel like there's some evidence of this. If it's a pattern of the resurrected Jesus, for example, Mary in John 20 sees the risen Lord, but thinks he is the gardener. That's right. She thinks he's the gardener working outside the tomb. She's maybe an arm's length or maybe two arm's length away from him and doesn't recognize him for who he is. Luke 24 gives us the story of the disciples on the road to a village called Emmaus. On the seven-mile hike, they meet a man they don't recognize. They walk and talk, and the man speaks with great understanding and wisdom about the Messiah, Moses, and the prophets. They're probably hiking shoulder to shoulder, but they don't catch on that it's Jesus. For whatever reason, the resurrected Jesus is harder to identify. Let's go back to John 21, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is on the shore, but the disciples in the boat do not recognize him. We know from a later verse that they are about 100 yards from shore. What does 100 yards look like? I wanted to see if I could out-disciple the disciples and identify someone from 100 yards away. Um, I did a little experiment on Wednesday this week to see if we had 100 yards line of sight inside our church building, and we don't. Someone suggested go out into the parking lot. So I went outside and with some help measured 100 yards from the sidewalk of our church out into the parking lot. We have a little more than 100 yards going that direction. Well, here's one of the pictures I took of my colleagues. They range in height from 5'4 to 6'4". Can you tell me who's in this image, left to right? What, what about this next one? It's a little brighter. Does that make it easier for you? Can you tell they moved? So I asked them to reorganize, and they gave me this lineup. It's kind of hard to identify them. Here's a closer shot. Did you even know that the person on the right was standing with his back to the camera? That from 100 yards, at least with the camera I was using, you can't tell your front from your back. It's wild. It's wild. My point, 100 yards is a good-sized distance. It's harder to identify someone than you think from 100 yards away. Even hearing his voice, it didn't all come together in their heads that this might be Jesus. So this Jesus, this stranger from the shore, shouts to them some instructions. This is verses 6, read through verse 8. Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So the stranger on the shore is right. They caught so many fish that they couldn't lift the nets up over the side of the boat to get them in. And then likely John, we're not 100% sure, but likely John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, I would say, has a flashback. 
He remembers fishing with Peter. They had fished all night long and caught nothing. Some preacher, some teacher arrives the next morning and asks to use their fishing boat as a platform to teach from. And then, when finished, has the nerve to tell these fishermen how to fish. They throw their nets in, and they end up tearing their nets because of the sheer volume of fish they had caught with a single cast. And his words were, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. It was this moment that I believe John remembers that triggers what is going on. This has happened before. Only one person can do this. It is the Lord. This is Jesus. This is an important moment to see and understand before we get to the second half of our text. Our impetuous Peter wraps his outer robe around him and dives into the lake. He committed to swimming the 100 yards to shore, this is in verse 8, not in a speedo, but clothed. Let this moment reveal how badly Peter wants to get back to Jesus. Do you see any hesitation? I don't. Peter had previously denied Jesus three times. Jesus even told him, Pete, you're going to say you don't know me. Not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter's response is, I'll die before that happens. What kind of fierce interrogation do you think is needed to break this Peter who will die before he denies Jesus? John 18, 17 through 18. He's standing around a coal fire, warming his hands, and a servant girl, one that might stand at the entryway to a door, asks him if he's one of Jesus' disciples. That's what broke him. I don't know him. It's not me. You must have me confused with somebody else. He would have said in his thick country boy Galilean accent, identifying him even further. And he does it two more times. He denies knowing Jesus. Yet in this moment, realizing that the man on the shore is Jesus, there's no shame for that. He does everything he can to get to him. Most early morning lake water, in my opinion, is chilly. So he jumps into the chilly water, clothed, and swims that 100 yards. I thought about swimming 100 yards in my church clothes to have a better understanding of what Peter physically did. But then I thought, I don't want to die. (laughs) Now, a question I want you to ponder on for a second. Is this moment going to be the first time that Peter and Jesus will be face to face since his denials? Is this going to be his first one-on-one time with Jesus? Let's look at verses 9 through 14. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. Uh, They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
The disciples remaining in the boat tow the nets full of fish to the shore, the hundred yards we talked about in verse eight. When everyone is on the shore, and I'm guessing that with Peter swimming and them in a boat, they got to the shore at about the same time. So no intimate moment yet between Peter and Jesus. What they see a fire of burning coals with some fish on it and some bread. Jesus invites them in verse 10 to bring some of the fish they have just caught from their nets. I thought about it for myself. When my family sits around an outdoor fire and we plan to cook on it, I intentionally plan to start the fire about an hour before we need to use it as a heat source for cooking. Even roasting marshmallows. Just a flame doesn't roast a marshmallow as evenly as a layer of hot coals. It takes about that long, an hour, for glowing coals to develop. So coals are one of the things the disciples notice. How long do you think Jesus was waiting there? How long was he setting up for breakfast? How long was he getting the fire ready to cook on? After Jesus says to bring some of the fish they caught, Peter gets back to the boat and he drags the net full of large fish, 153 ashore. According to verse 11, did anybody else help Peter? No, which makes me think he did it solo. So he swims 100 yards, fully clothed. He gets back to the boat then to drag the net of fish in. How heavy do you think that would be? He swims. Hey, Jesus, good to see the fit. Yeah, I got the fish. Okay. <laughs> Let's look at that number, 153. Why does that even matter? Now, the fish they caught was likely something called mushed. That's the most romantic way to say it. Repeat after me, mushed. mushed. All right, a mature mushed can weigh somewhere between three and five pounds. So, 153 fish were caught. And if they are all large fish, as the text says, let's just say for easy math that they were five pounds each. Peter muscles in a net filled with fish close to some 800 pounds. Now, I know what you all are doing right now. And honestly, you're sizing me up. I could do it. I really could. If I wanted, of course. Um, and I'd probably invite people for help because work smarter, not harder, right? 800 pounds pounds of fish being dragged through the sand and the rocks. And that could be a little off. That's fine. I, I round it up. 763 pounds without including the nets. Fine. Maybe there's some smaller fish in there. 700 pounds. Are you feeling better about yourself? 600 pounds? That's a huge collection of fish. Something you would be pretty excited about as a fisherman. That's a lot of fish. You'd be proud about it. And I think this answers the question, why is that little factoid, 153 fish even included? I don't think there is some cryptic mystery about why we're told 153 fish. What does 153 stand for? I see it standing for fish. That's the number of fish. It's an eyewitness detail. People are always proud when they catch a fish. I remember the first fish I caught, took a picture with it. So these fishermen, having nets full of fish, some six, seven, eight hundred pounds of fish, they sat on the shoreline looking for that fish that Jesus asked for. They're sorting, 
They're looking. They're counting. One, two, three, four. Whoa, look at this one. Should we give this one to Jesus? No, no, let's get another one. Five, six, seven. I'm going to stop at 153. There's nothing else left to count. Jesus invites them in for breakfast in verse 12. And they all knew who he was at this point. At one point in my preparation for today, I remembered Peter's argument with Jesus about foot washing in John 13. Jesus was making his way around the room in John 13, washing the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter, and Peter says, no, 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 you shall never wash my feet. This was servant work. Peter wouldn't allow it for Jesus to be put in that place in that moment. I like that. I like that, that boldness there. But, but wait, John 21 verse 12 says that Jesus invited them to come and have breakfast. They knew who he was, but they didn't say no. I like to think this means that Jesus had made breakfast for them before. Maybe this was part of his morning rhythms. Maybe he would break the bread and cook the fish and he served his disciples breakfast. I feel like it gives us an idea of who Jesus was to his disciples. And verse 14, verse 14 says that this was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. We're about to move into verses 15 through 19, often considered the time that Jesus reinstates Peter, forgives him, welcomes him back. I have a little problem accepting it that way. I asked you a couple minutes ago to consider this question. Is this going to be, going to be the first time that Peter and Jesus will be face-to-face since his denials? Face-to-face to have that, that private interaction, that intimacy. Verse 14 says that this was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples since the resurrection. So there is that. We know that as a group, Jesus has seen them. But I think there is more. I believe that Peter's behavior now, the fuller account of the road to Emmaus that I mentioned earlier, plus the writings of Paul, give us something to turn over and possibly never figure out. How does that sit with you? A little mystery? I'm not giving you answers. I'm just giving you mystery. I hope you're ready for this. Number one, Peter has no shame right now. If you were to deny knowing somebody, having been a follower of them, after saying you would die before you would ever deny the relationship, there would be an enormous amount of shame. So much shame that I believe you would not put your clothes on, swim 100 yards in them, to see the face of the man that you betrayed. His gusto, his energy to see Jesus does not match the shame he would be carrying if this hadn't already been dealt with. Number two, in Luke 24, we have an account of Jesus post-resurrection walking with people on the road to a village called Emmaus. They stop for the night, and when Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are opened, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. Jesus disappears And the people in the room hoof it the seven miles back to Jerusalem. And in Luke 24, verse 33 and 34, we get this. They found the 11 disciples and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Wait, what? He has appeared to Simon? 
Simon Peter, when, where, why? I don't have answers for that. (laughs) Number three, if you are a lover of Pauline contribution, we have 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth about the resurrection of Christ when he writes this in verses three to five. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and according to the scriptures, and we're in verse five now, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. So based on those things, Peter's no shame behavior in John 21, Luke 24, and 1 Corinthians 15, I believe we have an unrecorded post-resurrection meeting between Peter and Jesus. And if that's true, what would they talk about? What what do they got to talk about? I'm, I'm just speculating here, but I believe it would be his betrayal. And to give credit to my speculation, I do believe I'm right. It's okay. (laughs) To give credit to that speculation, if there was a meeting between Peter and Jesus, something had to have been talked about. Do Do you take that unrecorded meeting seriously? We can dismiss it, put it to the side. Nothing happened. But if we have that unrecorded meeting, what was said? because it has the potential to change how we look at verses 15 through 19. If that unrecorded meeting addressed Peter's behavior and Jesus forgives Peter at that time, then Jesus in 15 through 19 is not shaming Peter into submission. He's doing something else. So what's he doing? Let's read those verses now. Starting in verse 15. John 21, 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands And someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now there is some argument about the words that Peter uses in response to Jesus at that first questioning. Jesus asks if Peter... Agape loves him. And Peter responds by saying he phileo loves him. This is a Greek language issue. The idea is that Peter's word for love was inferior to the word that Jesus used. 
which means Peter was dodging the question, changing the words up so that he, he's able to answer how he wants. You know, Jesus used Peter's word for love, this phileo love in John 5.20, when he spoke about God the Father's love for himself. So if Jesus uses this phileo love to talk about God the Father loving God the Son, how could that be inferior? I think the word differences are just a recording of the tone of the conversation. Conversations vary in tone as you're going along. And I believe that's all it was. When Jesus spoke with Peter this time, I believe he was working to bring Peter back, back to reality, trying to get him out of his head, out of his own fears and insecurities, to help him stop comparing himself to the other disciples. It's been some time now. He's been sitting around the fire. His clothes have gotten dry. We don't see any other conversation. He might be in his head at this point. Who else swam the hundred yards to see Jesus? I was the only one who muscled the nets up to the beach. I'm something. Those were the kinds of things I believe Peter would say to himself as he made accounts for the work he was doing. It was comparison which led to his own insecurities. I believe he feared Jesus' leadership. He wanted to be loyal to Jesus in his leadership. He wanted to be obedient to Jesus in his leadership. And those are good words, loyal and obedient. But when you're unhealthy, loyalty and obedience, those words, they mean fear of leadership here. Fear was not the driving force behind Jesus' life and behavior. And to Peter, Jesus wasn't saying, feed my lambs because you're better than everybody else feeding lambs. Take care of my sheep because you're better than the other sheep tenders. Three times Jesus asked Peter. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Even with the forgiveness Peter might have received earlier in the unrecorded meeting, Peter still needs encouragement. Peter might think to himself that he is now disqualified from leadership, disqualified from being a real follower of Christ, banned from having a place in the circle of Jesus, and excluded from the love and intimacy he once knew from Jesus. Jesus is there to remind Peter, yes, of the denials, but not to rub it in his face, but to say that, Peter, your acceptability is not based on merit. It's based on love. There is nothing in Peter's past that disqualifies him from such love. As much as Jesus is literally asking, do you love me, Peter? He is reminding his disciple I love you. Don't fear me, Peter. Love me as I have loved you. And this is the encouragement I believe Peter needs because the path that is before him when he stretches out his arms. I really like how the conversation between Jesus and Peter ends. Jesus says in verse 19, follow me. He said it once before, 
a command to those in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. This time it's a little different. It's a kind invitation. There's no deep meaning to this one. Jesus simply means, hey, Peter, we've been around the fire for a while. Let's get up on our feet. Let's go for a walk together. And they do. They go for a walk. Do you know that you are loved, LEFC? Would that encourage you to hear that Jesus loves you? I'd like to do a prayer practice with you all. I would love for your participation. It's up to you how you want to participate. I want to start with a question. Uh, But don't give the answer out loud when I ask. Just listen, think, and then I'll give you the answer. Are you ready? Here's the question. Of all the things that God loves, what is the most important thing to you? Of all the things that God loves, what is the most important thing to you? And here's your answer. That he loves me. Before someone calls me self-centered or selfish, consider this. What is one of the very first songs we might teach our children in church? Jesus loves me. I think it's a lesson that we can hear over and over and over. It might feel a little selfish to say that the most important thing that God loves is me, but this must be grasped before possibly anything else. God loving me is what makes sense of the rest of everything else. If it's not good news for me, it's not good news. Why would I tell anybody about it? So I'd like to lead you in a time of prayer, some reflective prayer that engages your mind and your imagination. If you're comfortable with it, I invite you to close your eyes. And then let's take a few deep breaths together to quiet just some of the urgency in your mind and soul. To remove the list of to-dos. God, I pray that you will release our imagination and help us to hear you speak to us during this time together. We open our hands to you. We open our ears to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Imagine that you see two hands knitting. Imagine there are two hands in front of you with a great ball of yarn sitting next to those hands. What color is the yarn? Is it all one color or is it different colors? If you were to knit something special, what color yarn would you choose? Watch as the hands begin to shape the yarn into something. The yarn loops around the knitting needles and first begins to form a shape that you recognize. You aren't sure exactly 
what it is yet, but you have the sense that the person knitting is taking great care and paying attention to every detail. The hands that you see in front of you are strong hands, but they gently hook and loop the yarn so carefully. You notice now that you begin to see a set of feet being formed. They are perfect feet, and they seem about the same size as your feet. Suddenly, you notice that these feet are no longer made of yarn. They seem to be real, live feet. And yet the hands continue to knit, to knit more. This is pretty strange. It, get, it gets stranger. It isn't just that these feet look like your feet. They are your feet. You can tell by looking at them. You know your own feet when you see them. And those are definitely your feet. What do your feet look like? Try to notice what you see. Watch as the knitted legs turn into real legs. Your legs are right there connected to your feet. Someone is knitting with great detail and care. And everything they're knitting is coming to life. Watch as your body is knit together and formed. Your arms, your hands, your fingers. Imagine the hands that are knitting you pause a moment and reach out and grab one of your hands. Are you wondering who this is? who is knitting you and forming you from the ground up. Watch as these hands knit your neck and begin working on your chin. Nobody's chin is like anybody else's. You have a unique chin. Next, your lips. Your nose. Your cheeks your ears, and finally your eyes. Imagine now that your whole body is almost formed and someone is knitting your eyes into place. Suddenly, you can see. You see the hands that are knitting you. You see the yarn lying next to you. and You blink for the first time. And you open your eyes to see that the hands are the hands of Jesus. They are bringing you into existence, bringing you into life. He knits, and you are created. Think for a moment about who you are, who God has made you to be. What do you notice about yourself? What are you good at? What makes you laugh? What makes you cry? When do you feel strong and confident? 
What activity makes you feel like you are doing something you were meant to do? When do you feel weak? Maybe a little bit insecure. Are there things that you try to do that are hard for you? Listen to these words of David, who wrote many psalms. He says, Oh yes, you shaped me first inside and then out. You knit me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, You're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, and how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I even lived one day. Of all the things that God loves in the world, the most important thing to pay attention to is that he loves you. The most important part of the story is that God loves so many things and that he loves you in particular. Question, of all the things that God loves, what is the most important thing to you? That he loves me. May we be encouraged by the Lord's love. When God speaks with challenge in your life, convicting our hearts, we aren't any less loved in that challenge. God continues to delight in us. As we sing together, consider putting your hand on your heart and rejoicing by repeating God's words. I have loved you with an everlasting love. There's more in the bulletin, in the Bible app, where there were notes about what you can possibly do this week in response. The questions in the notes section of the bulletin, make an effort to think through them this week in your study times this week. There's also an exercise at the very end of it you can do. Take it seriously. You could change someone's life this week with a simple word. May you depart today encouraged by our creator that God the creator made you, formed you, loves you, and wants to encourage you. May we grow out of our insecurities and into a constantly maturing relationship with God. May God's love for us move us to love and encourage others. Go in peace.
to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next week.